Now we have spent the last couple of weeks, this is week three, that uh, we have been looking at the book of Haggai. Uh, what an incredible story it has been as we've been going through a series called Renewing the Rebuilding. And the Israelites have set in motion a really cool story for us to follow and to learn some key lessons from. Now, two weeks ago, as we dove right into this book, we learned that the Israelites had come out of the Babylonian exile. And as they had come back into Jerusalem, their main goal and focus was to rebuild the temple, the house of God. And as they began to rebuild the temple, there was a lot of anticipation and excitement. All was going well until two months into the project, the last hammer fell to the ground and no more stones were being moved. The Israelites faced a lot of opposition and a ton of obstacles. And because of that, they threw in the towel and they said, this whole temple thing is not for us right now. Let's go to our own homes. Let's build our own houses. Let's make our own lives. And they concentrated on their own good for that moment. So what happened uh, was that uh, two years into this project, uh, lots changing with their perspective, and they became spiritually complacent, spiritually lazy. Now, that's a very dangerous place to be. Uh, but after two years of facing opposition and facing all of these obstacles, they wanted to give up. So that's when God sends two messengers, their two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. These two messengers of God come with a very clear message to be given to the children of Israel who just left the exile of Babylon to come back to their home, the promised land, to rebuild the temple of God. And so Haggai approaches the scene and one of the themes or messages of chapter 1 that we saw mentioned in both verse 5 and verse 7 was consider your ways. It was a reflection. It was a moment for a heart check. And as the Israelites took this heart check, after 16 years of returning to Jerusalem, they got back to work. They were renewed in the rebuild. And so there has been much to learn from them as last week we saw how their focus and our focus needs to be upward, looking to Him, looking to God, so that we don't have shattered expectations. So often we put our expectations in projects and people, and sometimes even in ourselves, and we fall so short of that that the expectations are shattered. And we learn from God that our expectations should only be on Him, looking to Him. And when we find that, we'll find stability and strength instead of disappointment being disillusioned or even the source of fear in our life is when all of our expectations on our what we can accomplish, what my own knowledge and my own experience will give me instead of this trusting in God. We call that faith over fear, Mark chapter number six. And this faith over fear presses us forward and keeps our focus in the right place. Now, today, this section of verses that we're going to study here in chapter number two, we're going to look at verses 10 through 19. And these verses are going to help us to see a focus that is now inward. So last week we looked at a focus that is upward. Now we're looking at an inward focus, not to trust in ourselves. We know better than to trust in ourselves. But the inward focus now is going to be for the Israelites in this story and for us today to say, what is the contamination that is in my own heart and mind that is causing me to to fall away from God's will, God's leading, God's direction, God's path? What is it that is contaminating my heart and my mind? And by the way, all of us struggle with the outside elements of our life that become very contaminating, causing us to doubt, causing us to be disillusioned, causing us to be fearful. 
And so God is going to send his messenger, Haggai, to give a very clear message about sin. And so it's been close to two months. Okay, now timeline. They came back to Jerusalem for two years. They worked hard at rebuilding the temple. They threw it all away and said, we can't do this. For the next 14 years, they concentrated on their own goods. Haggai comes and says, let's get back to work. Consider your ways. Let's do this thing. Chapter number two, they're working hard on the temple, but they come to the month of September. It's the month for all of the feasts, and they're spending time concentrating and celebrating those. And so as we looked at chapter number two, verse one last week, we saw that the messenger Haggai came the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. They left their homes. They went and built these leafy huts that they would live in for this one week to remember as a memorial as their, their forefathers would wander through the wilderness for 40 years. And so the message that they gained was back in September, September 21st. Now when we come to verse number 10, we're going to find that it is the 24th day of the ninth month, which is not our ninth month, but it is the month of December. And so here we're going to find that the Lord is going to speak to Haggai after a very uh, time away for two months. And here's the message he gives. Look at verse number 10 with me, Haggai chapter 2. In the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Ask now the priests concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, or in the, the wing, the, the, the latter part, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. So if, if the garment touched those things which were set aside in God's house in the temple to be holy, and that were to touch those items of holiness, would that garment then become holy? The, the priest said, well, well, no. But then he says in verse 13, but if that same garment were to touch... Um, the unclean, then would those become unclean? And the priest answered and said, verse 13, yes, it, it shall be unclean, verse 14. Then answered Haggai and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, here's that word again, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord, so he's referencing back to even before the project began in chapter number one. Since those days were when one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. But one came to the, the press fat or the wine press for to draw out 50 vessels out of the press, there were but 20. I smote you with blastings and with mildew and with hail in all the labors of your hands, yet ye turned not to me, saith the Lord. Interesting thought there. So before even the first work of moving one stone to another on the, on the temple of the Lord, before that even happened, they were finding God's punishment had come on them. Their grain and their fields, which should have been producing much bountiful supply, was only bringing in half. And their wine press, their vines, were only producing even less than half of what they should have been. And he says, in all of that, when I brought these, this blasting or this, this blight or this judgment and with, your, with this mildew and with hail, with all of the labors of your hands, yet ye turned not to me. He says, consider now from this day and upward, 
from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree hath not brought forth from this day. Will I bless you? So this morning we're going to look at 10 through 19. We're going to study a message, a call to faithfulness. Father, we need your guidance this morning as we look at this text. I know that as we study an Old Testament text, certainly as a minor prophet as this, there was a very pointed reason why this was written as to give testimony of the history of your people. It also gives us great warning and heed to how you dealt with the people you love. And so, Lord, today I would ask that you would help us to see how this can connect with us. Help us not to read too deeply into the text and get things confused, calling ourselves as the church the Israelites, for that's not true. But, Lord, we are your people set apart, called to a very special calling. And so as your church today, we want to be open, sensitive, and willing to be shaped and changed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. So we ask for your guidance this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as you follow along in the notes, either in the hard copy in your hand or you can go to parkwaybaptist.org for a digital copy to follow along with, we're going to see two very simple points that come out in this text. The first one is, is that disobedience will bring consequences. This is not a wooing or wowing point by any means. This is, but yet it is a crucial point from the text. You know, disobedience is not just a struggle of childhood and adolescence. There's a natural pull in our hearts. There is this pull in our hearts and in our own lives that we want to be in complete control. Uh, today we celebrate back to school. And as college students are headed off, some have already left. Some are getting ready to head out here in the next couple of days. And, uh, and as they venture off, there are new adventures for them. They're no longer being told by mom to get out of bed, get to class, let's get breakfast, brush those teeth and do something with your nasty hair. They're not being told that anymore. Unless mom has a plan to call every morning at 7.30. Are you up? Are you up? Okay. But there's this sense of new control and guidance in their lives. And often for all of us, not just adolescents or new college students, often in times we want this complete control of our life. We know the best plan and we know how it should work and we know how all the puzzle pieces should be put together. And so we're going to aggressively approach that and say, this is the way it is done. What ends up happening is we tend to quiet the voice of God and the distractions of life become so overwhelming and consuming within us that the voice of God, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, is quieted and, uh, and squelched. And so these opportunities of obedience happen daily in our lives, multiple times a day. You know what that opportunity of guidance of the Holy Spirit, a voice of the Lord, a prompting within your heart, you know what that is, but... The time comes where we will either obey or we will disobey. We will quench the Spirit's prompting in our hearts. We'll quench the Holy Spirit's guidance in our mind. We become desensitized to His leading in our life. And truthfully, that's when disobedience becomes very natural for us. And we, we have so much disquieted the voice of God. And we have... Uh, often then become desensitized by quenching the Spirit, that this natural habit of just functioning in the way we want doesn't alarm our spirit anymore. That's a dangerous place to be. When our habits of sin and disobedience become so natural that there's no longer a stirring in our heart for repentance and to be renewed in our spirit again. 
It reflects in our attitude and it shows in our level of submission or really yet a lack of submission in our life. Now, folks, we understand that we cannot stop God's work just because we don't want to participate. The Israelites thought that they could stop what God wanted to do through Israel, through His temple, through what He had called them to do. If they just wandered far enough away and quieted the voice and the prompting enough that they, it would all just disappear and go away. We know that doesn't happen. There was a man that once met Horace Greeley. He was the famous newspaper uh, editor on the street. And when this man met him, he said, uh, Mr. Greeley, I want you to know that I have stopped your paper. Mr. Greeley responded, well, well have you? Well, that's, that's too bad. And he went on his way. The next morning, Mr. Greeley met the man again and said, Now, sir, I thought you had stopped the Tribune. He said, Well, I did. Well, then there must be a mistake, said Mr. Greeley, for I just came from the office and the presses were running, the clerks were as busy as ever, the compositors were hard at work, and the business was going as it was yesterday and the day before. Oh, said the man, I didn't mean that I had stopped the entire newspaper. I meant that I had stopped my copy of it because I don't like your editorials that you write. You know, you see in a story like this, the truth of what was trying to be communicated and often in the same way as individuals who rebel against God, we're like that man who proudly will announce and proclaim that we have stopped the work of God. But the truth is, is that though we reject God's rule in our life, that doesn't stop God's rule in everything. The Holy Spirit's going to continue to prompt. God will get a hold of our attention. God will lead us. And what is not true and what is not so is just because of our disobedience doesn't mean God's going to stop working. So in our story today, God, God would not bless his people the way he wanted to because they were tainted. And so the message was clear from Haggai to the people of Israel how important it was to keep themselves clean before God, pure, righteous, and pursuing that which was right. Now verse 11 picks up here after the intro to when this is taking place. It picks up with Haggai preaching in the temple, giving voice and word to the priests. And what he does is gives them a question that prompts their way of thinking just as a teacher would do in prompting the wheels to begin to turn in a student's mind. And so he simply asks these questions. They are easy ones that they are going to know the answer right away. By the way, I love those kind of questions on a test, right? When I know the answer right away because it's a given, you know, I love multiple choice when A is the right answer and B and C are just so way off that you're like, wow, this is an easy one. We all like those kind of quizzes. Or maybe I'm the only one, I don't know. So he asked the priests for the official ruling from the law on a matter of ritual. Now, with no law here referencing what they would have held in their hands as the, as the Pentateuch was, as we know today, the first five books of the Bible, they would have been living and guiding their lives based on what the law would have taught. And so, verse 12, Haggai is asking about the transmission of both holiness and impurity. And the priest answered correctly to what the law of the Moses says, holiness is not contagious, but impurity is. So we know that in our families, with our kids, that when one gets sick, they have become contagious and we quarantine and we separate them so that the rest of the family doesn't get sick. So we don't send a sick child to rub shoulders with a healthy child or to lick the cheek of a healthy child, hoping that health will then transfer to the infected child, right? We don't do that. What ends up happening is that the contaminated child, the one that is sick, 
is the one that just looking at somebody can cause great sickness to happen upon them. At least sometimes that seems to be what happens in our home. When Bailey and Brooklyn battle with sickness, we know that it's just a matter of days before one starts to get better and then the other one will be sick. And there's sometimes weeks upon weeks, spans of time when Natalie is not able to be here because she's nursing sick kids at home. And then sometimes parents even get sick because you're parenting the sick child. So that's why I move out and stay at the Hampton Inn anytime sickness is happening in our house, right? It's working wonderfully. Now we know here that what happened was the Israelites, they longed to return to the promised land. They're living in exile in Babylon. They just want to be home. And they're longing to be back and to, to spend time back where God had given them. And in and of itself, not a bad focus by any means. This is something that would have been a good goal, a good target for just to fall into place in the right timing. But Haggai reminds them that their simple presence in the promised land does not make them holy. Their simple being there does not make everything that they do holy now. So if the priorities of the heart are wrong, nothing we do is holy to God. Think about that for a minute. Too many people think that attending church on Sunday is a catch-all in their pursuit of holiness. Now, by the way, it's not a bad start, but it is not the catch-all either. So being on a ministry team doesn't make you holy if your purpose and your priorities are against God's will. Giving to the property advancement project doesn't make you holy if you're giving grudgingly or with a tight fist. Attending church on Sunday doesn't make you holy if your life Monday through Saturday is carnal and selfish. So we have to make sure that we understand that just being around people today doesn't rub off and make me a holy Joe or a holy Christian. The pursuit of holiness individually for all of us is that we are set apart from the entanglements and distractions of the world that wants to take us away from being focused and in tuned with God's specific will for our lives. And so we have to intently pursue that. And we have to do that every day. We have to be so intentional with it. And so Baldwin said the ruined skeleton of the temple was like a dead body decaying in Jerusalem and making everything contaminated. They were not willing to take care of the thing clearly God was dealing with. Have you ever been there in your spiritual walk? Where you're not willing to deal with that which God is clearly pointing out. And you think, well, nobody else really knows about it. So if I brush it under the carpet long enough, it'll go away. But then the dust bomb starts to build, build, build and flow out yet again. And we try to deal with it. And God's saying, get this right. Do something, turn from it and go the other direction. And we're like, well, this is my attachment. This is, again, the peace that helps me to feel in control of my life. This is the thing which brings me fulfillment. This is which brings me happiness. But you know what? I'm going to take it with me. I'll leave it in the backseat of my car and I'll go into Sunday worship and I'll stand and I'll smile, I'll sing and, and I'll shake hands and I'll greet and I'll connect and I'll even serve on a ministry team and I will be a part of the church and I will put on my holiness coat long enough so that when I can get back to my car, I can grab a hold of that dust ball, that very thing that I don't want to let go, even though God is pointing it out very clearly. So where the Israelites were, 
is they thought that just their motion of being back in the promised land is going to cause them to find holiness or just to be holy. But he clearly is bringing the priest to this realization that says, holiness is not contagious. It's not going to just rub off. Impurity is contagious. It grows, it spreads, and it gets worse. The truth is, is that when you are living holy, you know it. When you are living holy, you know it because you are humbled by it. And when you are living carnally, you know it because you are haunted by it. So where are you today? Now God sees their change of heart and he promises a harvest of blessing to come. In verses 15 to 19, as we read, he's going to use some, some words that I really want to point out here because this obedience is going to bring blessing. The obedience is, again, yet again, I know, not a wowing point. It's not like, woo, you dug deep into this text, all right? But these are still very crucial to just what the text is teaching us and very applicable to our life today. Obedience will bring blessing. Now, the people who hear the prophet Haggai and the message that he is speaking, they will be given a successful season of their farms and crops. Now, December has just ended the rainy season of Israel. And the rainy season has come to an end and the Israelites are wondering if their crops are going to produce greater than they have before. Remember, they're living 14 years. 14 years of where their crops have produced less, 50% less than what they should. And their grapevines have been producing even less than 50% of what they should be. So they are concerned. But now let's walk through these verses together. I want you to see verse number 15. It's clear that God is going to do something very special by the end of this. The hearers of the message are going to be stirred in their heart and given great assurance. But he starts in verse number 15, I pray you consider. This word consider, you remember, we talked about it just a few moments ago. Chapter 1, verse 5, verse 7. Now again here in verse number 15 of chapter 2, consider. This word consider is, uh, it is internal, it's an internal feature of our mind and emotions that give us discernment from right and wrong. That's the word consider. We know what consider is. Hey, after church, we get together, and the wife says, um, I think I forgot to start the crock pot, and the pot roast is probably still frozen. So, all right, well, where do you want to go? Well, let's consider our options, right? And uh, so we say Jason's Deli, Mission Barbecue, their parking lot's packed and busy, so there's Wendy's across the street or the McNasty Pizza Hut across the street from there, all right? So we've got a lot of different options, right? Now, if you're a pizza fan and you go to that Pizza Hut, uh, I'll put you on the top of my prayer list, okay? But there's, so we consider what our options, you know what it means to consider. But this consider here is this internal feature of our mind and our emotions that give us discernment of what is right and what is wrong. And so he says to consider from this day and upward. What does that mean? This day and forward, this day and up. This phrase here, this day and upward, is, is a scope of time frame to look at. And we, we see that this Hebrew expression was used to reference either a backward thought or a forward thought of time, or maybe even encompassing both of them together. The best example I could think of was when I look at my, my phone, and I've got an app on there called Runtastic. Anybody have Runtastic on your phone? Okay, just me. Okay, no, it's a, I mean, billions of downloads. Well, I don't use Runtastic. It's an exercise app, okay? So I, you know, it just sits there, and it's blue, and it's really pretty, and I, I like it. So 
But when I have used it in the past, I, I will commit to using it this week, just so you'll know I have reason to have it. When I look at the Runtastic app and I put it into use, what it does is after a lot and lot of exercise, sweating bullets, and I'm out of breath, and I'm intense, and I look at my Runtastic app, and it shows me the progress I've made. And sometimes it'll even speak to me. You have gone half a mile. Why is your heart beating so fast? All right, and I'm like, okay, you just shut up. Okay, here we go, all right? So the Runtastic app tells me where I have come from and the progress I've made, and then it shows me the forward motion of my goal. So it tells me what it's going to take to achieve the goal that I have set out to accomplish. So it is helping me to consider internal thoughts of my mind and emotions to discern right and wrong. It is helping me to consider whether I'm going to give in, give up, or am I going to trace back at what has happened and what I'm still pressing forward to accomplish? Haggai says to the Israelites here, guys, pull out your phone and let's look at the Runtastic app. He says, look at where you have been, what you have accomplished, and let's look where God wants to take you even forward from here. So he says, to consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was even laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Oh. Haggai's got to bring up the bad first. So he wants them to reflect on where they were, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. But Haggai, we were gung-ho, and we were excited, and we were going at it, and we were making wise decisions, we were accomplishing, we had removed the rumble, stone on top of stone, we were testing the walls, we were doing a lot, and, but then we, ha we faced a lot of opposition. And, and there were a lot of obstacles. The funding wasn't coming in. We didn't have Solomon's budget. And, and it was never going to return to the glory days of Solomon's temple. So we all agreed to give in, give up. It, we, it was not worth it. And so we went to our own homes. And we began to rebuild our homes. We poured our finances and our intents and our energy. And everything of who we were, we just poured into that. And now for 14 years, we have suffered the consequences. Because God pointed clearly what to do, and we chose otherwise. So Haggai is going to bring their attention back to that. The Jews were not keeping their end of the bargain of the covenant that God had made. And so God couldn't bless them as he had promised. And their economy fell apart. Now let's understand that these experiences were real, but God's people did not learn from them. Because in our text, it tells us that in verse 17, after everything that happened, you get 50% you get of, your, of your grains. You, you get less than that of your wine press. He says, I smote you with blasting, with mildew, and with, with, the, with hail. And after all of that, yet ye turn not to me. You know what that helps us to realize is that tough times don't necessarily bring us closer to God. You know what tough times do? It reveals who we really are before God. The tough times show us if we are truly ready to live in the sufficiency of God's grace or if our selfish heart will cause us to become bitter and throw in the towel and say, I'm, I'm going to go do it my own way. Remember back at the very beginning with disobedience is not an adolescent thing. It's a real thing that we all battle with where we want complete control of our life. And so he's pointing back to that in verse number 16, he says, since those days were, as he refers back to that, and then he comes into verse 18 and 19, which is really the key thought for today, as it all builds up to this main exploding thought, because 
there again is yet another word, consider. Verse number 18. If you write in your Bible, you may want to mark these. There's verse 18, consider. There's the verse 15, consider. Back in chapter number 1, there's verse number 5 to consider. There's verse number 7 to consider. And you can circle and you can see these and understand why. End of verse number 15, he says, consider it. And why is this important? Again, because consider is the internal feature of our mind and emotions that give us discernment over right and wrong. So Israel is not going to continue to live in sin. They're going to now consider your ways. They're going to consider from this day and upward. They're going to consider now from this day and upward yet again. And so here, having looked back, Haggai now says, let's look ahead from this day onward. And he does it by making a solemn, a solemn declaration. Look at what he says. He says, consider now from this day and upward, verse 18. He's going to make it official and legal. He says, from the fourth and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, as yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive tree have not brought forth, from this day will I bless. That's one of those conversations where you're just waiting for that last statement to be made and you hope it's going to leave you on cloud nine. Like it's that conversation with your boss. It's the conversation with your manager. It's the conversation with your parent. It's something that is building, building, and building. Reality has to point back, as the, as the Runtastic app shows us, the struggles just to get that first half mile in or to get that first mile in. It shows us the struggles where we had to slow down or we had to stop to, to uh, let the dog do their business or whatever. We, we, we were slowed down, bogged down, and now he says for us to look ahead. And he says, while we're looking ahead, let's, let's leave this on the high end. And he says, God says, I will bless you from this day on. So the blessings might not come immediately, but they will come. You know, for us as Christians, sometimes we, we look for immediate blessing, don't we? Don't we tend to fall into that trap? Think about this. What does that look like for us today? Sometimes, if we're not careful, our sole motivation for obedience is looking for immediate blessings. So we, if I go to church on Sunday morning, it should end up being a really good day. I mean, if, I, if I'll just, I'll get out of bed, I'll get the kids ready, we'll dress up, we'll get to church, we'll sit there, we'll participate. I mean, surely God's going to give us a good rest of the day. I mean, if I, if I go to church on Sunday morning, the afternoon golf round should be pretty good for me. I mean, a hole in one at least, right? Or maybe a par. If I give in the offering today, I should see financial increase this week. See, again, the wrong motivation is looking for immediate blessing to our obedience. If I read my Bible and I pray, I should get along with my wife today. Well, sometimes you even find that getting away after reading your Bible and prayer... The enemy is on high alert, ready to attack. And the enemy is not your wife. All right? I know sometimes your spouse seems like your enemy, but they're not your enemy. But the enemy is on high alert. He doesn't like the fact that you're growing, taking steps, and you think, well, I just read my Bible this morning and had a good time of prayer with God. The least God could do is help my spouse to be kind to me or my kids to behave and not give me trouble. 
And if I, if I do right today and I avoid wrong, then I should get a big blessing of some sort today. Now, don't get me wrong. When we do right, there's usually certainly a good feeling of accomplishment and peace within our heart of what we're doing pleasing to the Lord. But our sole motivation is not the immediate feeling, but rather being motivated in our love for God. This past week, we met with our, our school staff and our church staff and at the end of our session, we reminded ourselves about true motivation, what that motivation should be. And it was all referenced back that all of our motivation in life should come because we are in love and living in the love of God. Too many times we're motivated because of performance. So if I can perform the Christian life in an acceptable manner, I will find reward and blessing. If I can perform it to what the church has taught me to do, if I will perform it to what my Bible college guided me to do, if I will have rules and regulations like I learned 20 years ago or 10 years ago, if I will shape my life in that way, if I can perform to the highest, I will gain great blessing in my life. A wrong motivation, a wrong inspiration. We should not be performance driven. Then the other area is indebtedness. We look at this indebtedness and the message oftentimes is said out of a a sincere heart that says, Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. The least you can do is live the rest of your life for him. And though the message behind that statement is true, what becomes then the sole motivation of our life is that I have to go to church today because Jesus died for my sins. I have to be on a ministry team because Jesus died for my sins. I mean, <laughs> he gave it all. Can I give him some? I mean, he gave everything. I should be able to give them a Sunday. And all of a sudden, our motivations are skewed by performance and in this indebtedness. But when we find ourselves living in the love of God as our sole motivator, and we can't help but want to be in His presence. We can't help but want to be with His church. We can't help but want to use our gifts and our talents and our abilities to be a blessing to the church as well as to glorify God. So you see how things in our life begin to shape and form based on the only motivation of living in the love of God. So the people of Israel, they were going to have to learn this. Now they didn't have the New Testament text that we have. And when Jesus looked at his followers and he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now somebody say, well, there's performance based. No. Because he says, if you love me, you're going to naturally do as I've said to do. So the Israelites are teaching us something here. Because the people of Israel were called to faithfulness. And you say, how does this whole faithfulness connect? The dictionary tells us that faithfulness is to follow through with a commitment regardless of difficulty. Another dictionary definition says, faithfulness is firm in belief, reliable, dependable, honest, loyal, consistent in the performance of duties of service, steady, not fickle. Now, one thing I do know, and I want us to be very clear about it this morning, is that being faithful does not mean being perfect. Being faithful, a call to faithfulness, is not a call to perfection. But what it is a call to do is to live holy. So God knows us. He knows what, that we're not going to be perfect, he, he is the one who declared that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. 
He knows that there, there is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. God knows we cannot achieve perfection here on earth. That's why he sent his son, Jesus Christ, as the sinless lamb of God to die on the cross for our sins and all the sins of mankind. So that today we can sit with assurance that somebody has been my substitute to pay the penalty and price for the wages of my sin, for the payment and price of my sin personally. And so Jesus did that. So that now we can have the great assurance that said that when God commendeth, extended, and demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. So we confess those sins to an almighty God, and we claim him to be our Lord and Savior. It's a life and calling to surrender. It's to say that I give up being in complete control. It says that I can't figure out life on my own. It says that if I take the last breath today, where will I spend eternity, young and old? So that question ponders for all of us. Our call to faithfulness is not a call to perfection, but rather to consistency and reliability. It's a life that is motivated out of love for God and does what it can to live by obedience to his will. So the question I ask for all of us, as Haggai would ask a lot of questions to the people of Israel, but the thought we take today is, am I living a life following the call to faithfulness? Disobedience is going to bring consequences. Obedience will bring blessing. Where are you living today? God, I thank you that you have led us in a direction of studying through this little book. And I thank you that we can connect some dots and as this teaching is here, we can apply it to who we are today. So, Father, in these closing moments, I don't know how you're stirring and working, but we want to submit to that. I don't want us to be distracted by any other elements other than honing in on the very fact that you're prompting in our hearts for something. If there's somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they don't know that if they were to die today, where they would spend eternity. Maybe they're confused at about even life after death. Maybe they think they just go to the ground and no more. Maybe they think that uh, they've got a lot of years ahead of them and they'll think about it when they're older or maybe when they're on their deathbed. But God, you will draw men to yourself. You'll convict their heart. You'll prompt their minds and their hearts to, to think about their own eternity. And so if somebody here today is thinking about that, would you, would you give them boldness to come, to come to grips with that? Help them not to leave here confused, wondering, or even avoiding some religious experience. Help them to search for a personal relationship that will change their life. I know that there's a lot of Christians here across this auditorium. And I, I don't know how you have taken the message that you've given us and shaped it into their heart and mind. My prayer, obviously, as your messenger, would be that you've taken it as you have in my own life and shaped us today and changed us. So would you give them time to reflect, to pray, to repent, to renew, and to move forward from what we've learned today?